0: Hey, I'm Pastor Dave. Welcome to the Lighthouse. We hope the Lord speaks to you today by his word. God bless. Good morning, Lighthouse Church family. <laughs> the children are dismissed. Again, I'll greet you. Good morning, Lighthouse Church family, and for the second week in a row, I get the pleasure of wishing you a very merry Christmas season. Good morning. This marks the second week I have been given the opportunity uh, to speak before you in this, the Advent season. For those who were not in attendance last week or are confused by my assertion, uh, by my assertion that this is the Advent season or that we will partake today in an Advent service of sorts, but are puzzled looking for the Advent wreath, do not be alarmed. The series we have begun to work through uh, has been entitled Deconstructing Advent in an attempt for us in the modern evangelical church to break down the season we find ourselves in. That so often we assert that the reason for the season is not found in gifts under the tree or lights strung outside of your house, or even with the the wreath of candles lit in commemoration of the coming of the birth of Jesus Christ. We now celebrate in what is called the Advent season leading up to Christmas, in recognizing this, we can begin to delve deeper into what cru- Christmas truly means when we say we look for the reason for the season why anyone would partake in the celebration of something called Advent. As I asserted last week, and we'll say again, the goal of our postmodern deconstruction of a tradition and ritualesque practice stems from us asking the noble question of why do we do what we do? Or more accurately, why do we celebrate the way that we celebrate? And when we remove the elements that are not core matters of faith, what is it that we are left with? Not to say that we believe that gifts or having a turkey dinner or Advent wreaths are inherently sinful, as I stated last week, and may yet state again. Giving a gift is an awfully nice way to say that you love someone. Breaking bread together and delighting in time with family are commanded of us biblically. And Advent is no different, for at its core principles, it can demonstrate to us a lot about the value of the Christmas season. You see, Advent, when translated literally, means arrival. And we truly are in a season of arrival, to celebrate and delight in the arrival of our Lord and Savior in the beautiful nativity scene you would have seen uh, when you entered into the church foyer this morning, that over 2,000 years ago, our our Savior, was born in the little town of Bethlehem, lying in a manger in swaddling clothes, no crib, no bed, but there in the hay amongst the sheep laid the Lord, humbly come in the form of an infant boy. To the world a less than triumphant entry, but to those who know, the humility of coming in such a manner was symbolic, that not only was this a triumphant king or the Lord who is worthy of our praise, Worthy also of a palace and and a crib or bed for him to lay upon. But the God of all creation demonstrating in an act of perfect love that he cared for his people so much that he would go even to the lowest of places to ensure that one could lay their eyes on the Messiah that had come. It was remarkable to me this morning as we all stood and sang, he loves us, oh how he loves us. The word that was given by Pastor Dave as he went up to speak before he knew the message. The testimony that was given by Clarence. It all culminates in us recognizing the perfect love of God. And that is the week that we find ourselves upon in the the Advent season. This is the week of the love candle that we will not light. That when the lowly, humble shepherds arrived alongside The revered magi, you see the two sides of the spectrum, the lowest and the highest, and everybody in between would be made available. The the Lord Jesus Christ, an infant boy to witness an act of perfect love and how the world would never be the same. You see, this imagery and this symbolism is not by mistake. And it is fitting that this week would be the love candle that we will not light, For love is a powerful motivator. It would lead someone to the ends of the earth to demonstrate how far the depth and width of their love is for another. Consider the knights of medieval times who would fight under the risk of death with a token of an esteemed maiden that they tried to impress. Or a more modern approach, the young man at youth group carrying stacks as high as they can in order to impress the cute girl that they like. You see, this form of love can lead a person to do crazy things and drives the individual to acts of romance that to the sane individual appear outlandishly foolish. And I don't stand up here at this pulpit as though it were an ivory tower claiming that I were above these foolish so-called acts of love to impress my now wife, Caitlin. You see, I can still vividly remember the summer that I began to take an interest in her and in my belief at the time She had taken an interest in me. You must know that Caitlin and I had known each other since we were 13 years old, but only insofar that we spent time in the same groups at camp or participating in the same team activities. It was never an individual relationship that we developed together. No, despite the fact that we attended the same camp for five to six years as campers, it wasn't until we had aged out of that youth camp that Caitlin had reached out to me to invite me to a young adult's retreat. She was going to attend at the same camp that we grew up attending together. And there I was, thinking, oh man, she's clearly fallen for me. <laughs> and now she's inviting me to come to this retreat to spend time with her. Caitlin, my now wife, had a crush on me. That is so embarrassing. Well, little did I know I was one about one of t- 10 to 20 invites that she had sent out. And she had not really considered me any more than the other dozen-plus individuals that she invited. But by this point, I was texting her day and night, talking to her. And this is where the love bug will bite you. I was in the summer internship program as the only landscaper at my school at King's College between my first and second year trying to save money. And this poor girl who had simply sent me an invitation had taken pity upon me in my desperate attempts to impress her, and would respond to my lengthy text messages throughout the day and night. You see, in my experience, how far are the lengths that you will go to for love? Well, I spent this summer trying to win the attention of my now wife, and I would stay up until 2 or 3 in the morning, sometimes later, texting her, and then waking up at 7, sometimes earlier, to go landscape in the blazing summer sun on only three hours of sleep a day, if I were lucky. You see, it was also in the same summer that I discovered the wonders of the effects of caffeine, as I had for the first time begun to drink coffee in order just to make it through the day. But I can proudly stand up here and say that my efforts were not in vain, and eventually the poor girl took such pity on me to accept when I asked her out on a date And eventually, three years later, when I asked for her hand in marriage, love can lead a person to do crazy, crazy things. But the love I talk about is found common to man and is unlike the form of love that we will explore in the discerning of how love relates to Jesus' coming. But before we delve deeply into that subject, I did briefly want to discuss how the Bible classifies love. Specifically, how it relays the different characteristics that love can be portrayed in. You see, these portrayals are accurately understood by three different names. Eros, philios, and Agape, love. These are from the Greek. The first, there is Eros, love. The form of love I have spoken about in the context that can lead an individual to do many crazy things in the name of impressing a desired partner which is why eros is understood or described in Scripture and studied to reveal that one form of love that can be understood as romantic in nature. The world would understand this element of love that involves the passionate love between two lovers, but in Scripture, this is linked with the intention informing forming us as sexual beings with sexual attractions. And it sounds taboo or wrong as I stand up here to say the words sexual attractions within a church context. But Scripture does not shy away from God's intent in this part of our creation, and neither should we refrain in church uh, congregations or, or in church services to speak about this intent of God's creation, for it was made to be a beautiful expression of love within the confines of marriage. That it is no secret to us that humans were made with these attractions. And Eros love can be beautiful within the context a correct context, but the reason it seems jarring to hear that these, these words come from the pulpit comes from our recognition that it can also be destructive when these lusts are left to linger within our hearts and minds unguarded, or when they are acted upon outside of what God has ordained as beautiful and holy. Which, of course, we know scripture also warns us of often, but do not make the common mistake of seeing the word eros, and relating it to the connotations of the modern word and modern perception of the word erotic, which comes from the connotation of sexually deviant behavior. For when eros is used in the Old Testament to express the physical and sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife, it is a beautiful expression of love. It is a gift from God linked to the forming of new life and creation. And the blessing of seeing the desires of our heart expressed in the way that God will honor between two lovers, even having an entire book of the Bible dedicated to demonstrate the beauty of Eros' love between husband and wife called the Songs of Solomon. Perhaps one day I will preach a message on the value of Eros' love and God's intent informing us as sexual beings and how we as a church can steward marital relations and how we are commanded to also be uh, reproved beyond an immoral sexual relationship which defaces the beauty of God's ordained command to honor our husbands, our, our wives, our spouses through God in this sacred blessing of marital relations. For if it were shameful for a husband to be attracted to his wife, we would not have been given a book described as the greatest of songs, described at length the way a husband should perceive his wife and a wife perceive their husband, in the beauty and intimacy of this, the first form of love called eros. Next, there is that which I have told you before is called philos love, which unlike eros can be linked with the connotations uh, of a modern word. You can actually relate this word philos to a modern understanding for what is the city of Philia or Philadelphia nicknamed? Does anybody know? That's correct. The city of brotherly love, its namesake coming from the church of Philadelphia, whose namesake was the church of brotherly love. You see, one may recognize this Philadelphian church from our our word in scripture. For Revelation, uh, in Revelation, the, the Philadelphian church is one of seven churches in the last days that receives a letter. But unlike the other churches, it is unique that it is the only church that the the Lord registers no complaint against. This is the church that delights Christ. What quality does this church possess? The Lord says to this church, I know your works. See, I have set you before an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength. You have kept my word and have not denied my name, says Revelations 3.8. You see, the namesake was given to the people of any church who loved Jesus and were not ashamed of the gospel. To those who, though they may not have much strength, made every effort to follow the command of Jesus in sharing the gospel. To every tribe and every nation, and unlike their Jewish counterparts or unlike the counterparts of those who are ashamed of the gospel, they instead welcome in the Gentiles, neither ashamed to call them their brothers. This concept of Phileos preceded uh, the writing of Revelation and describes the love one has for their brother. Not to be confused with the obligation of loving your family when you say, I have to love my brother because I'm stuck with him. These are my brother's words and not mine. You see, Philios carries a connotation of generous, affectionate, love for each other and and it seeks to make the other happy the scriptural account of, of david and jonathan is an excellent illustration of filio love where it says in first samuel 18 1 and 3 i have uh, sorry after david had finished talking with saul jo- uh, jonathan became one in spirit with david and he loved him as himself and jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. This form of love, phileos, love, also pleases God, but it is not a, itself a perfect expression of love. For man cannot comprehend the perfect expression of love outside of the stewarding of God's own character demonstrated first to us. For this final form of love and the one we will focus in on today is called agape love. And as we break down the expectation of Jesus' coming at Christmas, the Advent expectation of the arrival of perfect love, known to us as agape love. Agape is the Greek word that signifies a selfless, sacrificial, unconditional love, known to us as Christ-like love. It is only made available to us in God's image, which is stored within us. The correlation between agape love and Jesus' incarnation, his humble service and sacrifice on the cross has become fundamental in the essence behind our understanding of what scripture means when it says in 1 John four sixteen, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. For God is love and he abides in love uh, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. You see, for unlike Eros and philios love, agape is not stored up within our creation as something to be redeemed. It cannot be defiled when demonstrated outside of the confines of God's intention for agape love is what God is, and it is his character that is demonstrated first to us, and then in us, stewarding it. Abiding in it, demonstrating it to others. As first uh, John four nineteen says, We love because he first loved us. Where Eros and Philios are built into man and are made to be demonstrated in a way that is holy and righteous, and not to be defiled by wrongful practice, agape love, it is almost contrary to the nature of man. For it is found only in God's image stored in us and it is only provoked within us to love others as God loves us when the Holy Spirit's working in and through us begins. As we respond to the Holy Spirit and follow his example set before us by Jesus Christ, we can only then begin stewarding this form of love revealed to us when we accept the command given in John 15 12 to 13 which says my command is this love each other as i have loved you greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends or in simpler terms from the moment that you accept jesus's gift of grace and allow the holy spirit to begin working on you that you will be given the desire to love others in the love of christ which says i will not only die for you though i have nothing to gain but I will also live for you. I will not just die for you, but I will live for you to honor you and to submit to you, though you will do nothing to redeem this act of mercy and grace. I may even know that you will reject my offer of perfect love, and I will still choose to humble myself, to live and die for you, and even then I will not relent in my pursuit of you that I will persist that you, until your last dying breath, will keep from ex- you will not be kept from experiencing the depths and widths of the love of God. You see, before I described Eros love's flawed efforts to do what agape love perfected, which is to go to great lengths to win the affections of another. But unlike Eros and philios, agape seeks nothing to gain. The only thing that it seeks is that the other be lifted up, even if it means the platform requires the lover to be lower. No promise of gain, no intimate gratification, no reward. Agape love is sacrificing everything to gain a reward that you will then still surrender to another. You see, the connection with the Messiah, Jesus, we reflect upon this Advent season. Do not understand, it was not only in his death that Jesus portrayed perfect love to us, that we may follow in his example, but his life, his coming, his arrival. For if we are to love like Jesus first loved us, we would each begin dying for one another. And soon the pews of every church would sit empty. If that is what the command meant, that we would love as Jesus loved and we would each die for one another, then the churches would be empty, there would be no one left to share the gospel. No, Jesus gave us the perfect example of love in his coming, not just in his crucifixion, but in his incarnation and in the intentions of why he was sent in the form of man to live, not just to die. For the doctrine of incarnation is emphasized to us in the gospel of John. Most advent explorations that you will attend Uh, of Jesus coming are found out, out of the nativity portrayals found in Luke or Perhaps even in the birth accounts from Matthew and Mark Which while less descriptive of the story still tell us of the manner in which Jesus came to be born from a physical sense an earthly sense a biographical sense I Will save those perhaps for pastor Dave at our Christmas Eve service for to paint the portrait for you of this momentous occasion today to come to an understanding of god's gift of perfect love uh, upon the first christmas night it would seem fit to call upon john's gospel which devotes itself to revealing the nature of jesus's divinity and the reason for which the son of god was sent incarnate where the other gospels are biographical a simple telling of the birth life and death of jesus and his time on earth john's gospel offers us more Specifically, John's gospel gives powerful insights into the work that Jesus knew he was sent to accomplish before he ever would lay in the manger as an infant boy. He knew what his undertaking was. Where other gospels will tell you of the scene of his birth or provide the context of what took place leading up to his coming or even what would transpire shortly thereafter, Luke taking the narrative approach while Matthew and Mark go for a more direct biographical method, simply giving you the details straight. John, John comes at it from a radically different angle and begins his telling of Jesus' coming in a far less traditional sense. He he works with rich poetic license to reveal profoundly theologically rich truths that stem from Jesus' great purpose before the time of his birth He starts his gospel with this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. An unbelievable way to start your telling of Jesus' life. I mean, especially when you consider his counterparts who are trying to simply give their account from their own remembrance or perhaps from what they had been told of Jesus' birth. Can you imagine how the other disciples must have felt reading John's first draft when he brought it to him? Okay, man, are you trying to one-up one up us here? John's work uh, is, is telling the gospel of Jesus' Uh, life by working backwards, not from his birth, but from the beginning of time, and does so in such a powerful, poetic manner. Weaving from powerful imagery to strikingly powerful truths that he begins not when he met Jesus or when he, what he had heard about his birth, John goes to the beginning. The beginning where John tells us that Jesus resided with God. He works forward into the formation of life and light, ensuring that all who read his gospel would know that Jesus was not just man, but the Son of God and God himself, and through him all things were made that were made. He continues by saying, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about this light, that all might believe through him. nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. You see, before you can even make up your mind about this Jesus guy that the other Gospels try to present to you and say, who do you think that this guy is? This man who claimed to be the Son of God, who came and lived and died on the cross. John cuts out all the decision-making for you. He tells you how it is, that through his incarnation, his life, and death, all Jesus was before he ever came in the form of man, right through to the time of his birth, his life, and death, we are made to know that Jesus represents the light of the world, to make visible and known to all a way to come into relationship with God that did not exist before his work was accomplished, that before he ever tells you of his miracles, before he ever tells you of his ministry, his birth account gives you the truth, that the man you rejected and crucified was God's own Son, God's own Son incarnate. In flesh he came, taking the form of man, so that he may overcome sin and fulfill humanity's need to have intercession for sin, a way made to have atonement with God the Father. This is the gospel message. This is the truth that makes us celebrate Christmas Easter, and every Sunday in between to devote our living to the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and he remains seated at the right hand of the Father. Amen. But what does this have to do with love? And why did I assert that John's gospel reveals this core truth and principle of Christ's incarnation and in life being the act of perfect love to reflect upon an eager excitement for Christ's arrival at Christmas because again John provides insight throughout his gospel account of God's objective design behind sending his only begotten son I referenced it last week pastor Dave referenced it this morning already and I will say it again but with a different emphasis than I had said it last week last week I spoke before you about moving from hope to faith and we emphasize John 3.16's message that to each who would place their belief in him, Jesus makes a way to go from empty hope into faith in the only thing that brings life and meaning. But this week we will remember the reason that God would make this way for broken, flawed, otherwise unredeemable individuals like you and I to be restored into right relationship with him. For it was because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for it was because of God's love he sent his son to die for you it was because God knew there was no other way there was only one who could stand to make substitution for our sin to overcome death to bring life to the dead, and to make clean that which was uncleanable, to restore the unrestorable, to set the captive free, to give hope to the hopeless, to love the unlovable. It had to be Jesus. It had to be the love of a Savior willing to exhibit such humility that he would put off his own divinity, to surrender everything. I want you to take this in for a moment, that God himself surrendered control of the universe, Everything in it, Jesus surrendered, being in perfect relationship in the presence with his own father. For what? Why? To become lower than low. To not only take the form of broken mankind, creator become creation. And more than this, to come in the form of a helpless infant boy who laid in a bed of bristles and straw beside the excrement of barn animals, am I painting this picture clear enough for you today? This is how much God loves you. People think that his death on the cross was the act of perfect love, but I'm here to tell you that his death was just the climax of a story of a lowly, humble, forsaken, rejected, beaten, and bruised, scorned, and disregarded man who also just so happened to be the God of all creation in the flesh, simply because he loves you so very much. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we may have seen his glory. Glory as of of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from him his fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. For the law was given to Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the work of love. The reason for the title of this message, The Fulfillment of Love, is Twofold fulfillment of love is twofold that you would leave this morning with an understanding that love is the fulfillment of two things first love is the fulfillment of the law so it says in Romans 13:8 to 10 let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law The commandments say you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever command there may be are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. For love does no harm to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And so we see Romans 8 speaks of what we have already addressed when I told you that God has commanded us to love one another as Christ first loved us, that without love the law was not fulfilled, for as Christ said, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In his coming, his living, and his dying, he demonstrated that the law was not overcome by anything but by love. And so we have been called to this same command, to fulfill the greatest command of Jesus, to love others as he loved us. That if you regard the gift of grace and the act of love so highly that you would accept that Jesus would die for you, then value your neighbor as much as Christ's life and death for yourself. That is how much we must consider the other, as much as Jesus regarded us. If the God of all creation is willing to humble himself enough to take the lowly form of a servant and to live and to die for them, then you have been called to do the same. To humble yourself, to serve those around you and love even the most unlovable of people to the point of being prepared to die for them and everything in between. For agape love is prepared to sacrifice oneself to the point that we would love as Christ did to the point of death and everything that leads up to it. This kind of love can be described like this. If I speak in the tongues of man and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. hopes all things, and endures all things. This is agape love. And I mean this literally and effectually. That, the love, is, uh, that the, the love that is described in this passage is translated with the word agape love, and so I mean it literally. This is agape love and Paul's description of it, but also I say that I mean it effectually meaning the effect of your having read this, your perceiving and receiving of this passage is the same as the giving of a command. This passage must take effect in your life. It must take effect in the way that you love this Christmas. This kind of love must replace the way in which you love your family, the way you submit and care for your wife or husband as Christ did for his bridegroom, the church. It must bring difference in the way that you treat your coworkers, your friends, and your colleagues, even the ones that you despise in your flesh. You must replace the bitter envy or that root of bitterness in your heart towards your enemies with a love that is not irritable or resentful to cease the rejoicing and wrongdoing towards someone who has wronged you first. For even while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God By the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. The truth of love is this that Jesus died for the men who nailed him to the cross. He longed and he pled with the Father for these individuals he pled and he longed for their forgiveness. Even when he stood upon that cross still, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the love of Jesus, who the Jewish people anticipated the arrival of, yet they could not have known the depths and the width of love and the love of their Savior. But we know it now as those who have been given the full truth and this is the second fulfillment of love which I will leave you with this morning that we too can find f- fulfillment in the responding to the love of our Savior and taking his heart upon ourselves that we must begin to demonstrate the love of Christ to those around us that this Christmas as we eagerly await during this the Advent season the arrival of Christmas do not forget what we have been commanded Of before Jesus arrives again at his second coming that before the day of the Lord approaches we are to love one another as Christ first loved us that if we are to go to the point of death we are also then to live for others as Christ came incarnate to live for us and to serve those who he lived alongside and if the Son of God the God of all creation can humble himself enough to wash the feet of his disciples, then certainly you can help your elderly neighbor hang their Christmas lights. Or you can care for the widow, the orphan, the sick, or the hungry. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and we clothed you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Or the greatest act of love, the greatest gift that you can share this Christmas is to share the truth of the gospel that you have heard this morning. And this is my benediction to you all. Just as John asserted, Jesus was the light in the darkness. In the same way, Let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. This is being the hands and feet of Christ. This is the ensuring that the work of perfect love extends further in our generation. And the core of what Advent leads us to, so as we eagerly await the arrival of the Lord and Savior, let us come out to bring out of darkness those and into his marvelous light. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the sermon. Just want you to know you can find full live stream services on our website, LighthouseNiagara.com.